Well, good morning. If we haven't met before, my name is Rob Jacobson, and I'm so glad that you're here today. I heard a story about a pastor and an author who was going to a concert with his wife, and they went to the symphony, and they liked to go to the symphony. They actually really loved not just listening to the music, but he in particular really enjoyed watching the people that were a part of the music and making the music happen. And this one particular time, he thought it rather saw it as rather odd that there was this one guy in the back, you know, people in an orchestra, they often wear the full suit or the tuxedo, and there's this one guy in the back that looked very, very bored. In fact, he didn't have an instrument in his hands, and he kept looking at his watch and was kind of slouched in his chair, and at one point in the concert, even left for 20 to 30 minutes, just kind of disappeared. So this guy kept looking and looking and waiting and waiting, and even when he came back, Um, this guy continued to look very, very bored, just not involved. The music was great, but he seemed to have nothing to do with it. Now, uh, as someone who used to be a musician, um, I think I know a little bit of what he felt. So I walked on my marching band in college my first year, played the baritone, the marching baritone, which was kind of fun because it looked like a big fat uh, trumpet. But, you know, when you used to have to carry something this big and now you get to carry something like this, it was, it was rather fun. And our marching band for a small Division II school, we had over 300 people in the band, and it rivaled some of the Division I schools. It was, it was a very, very good band. But I stopped playing just after one year, because I didn't feel like I made a significant contribution to the band, so I didn't see myself as necessary. Now, when you think about what it means to be a significant player or someone who's an innovator, do you see yourself as someone who's like that? You know, these people are the people who letter in, if it was sports, they would letter like in ninth grade, maybe even in middle school. If it was a play, they'd get the lead role. If it was a pageant, they'd come in first. And if it was a band or an orchestra, they would definitely be first chair. Now, um, so if that's the definition, then do you see yourself as someone who's a significant player? These people do things with music in particular that that no one even dreams of. Take a look at this video of some guys that are learning new ways to play the piano. Kind of amazing, huh? I mean, I didn't even know a piano could do some of the things that it did, and I didn't know that a violin or a cello bow could be used in that way, but these are people who I would say are significant players. They're innovators. They are people that, that, like I said, are first chair people. Now, if that's the definition, do you think you're one of those people? Because by that definition, I'm not one of those people. I, I mean, I was first chair baritone in my high school. I was also last chair at the same time. So... <laughs> true. But see, I believe this lie of being significant. And I I think it's a lie. Because I think that I was seeing it all wrong. Because maybe being innovative is just creativity. And maybe being significant doesn't have anything to do with being first chair or getting to perform the solos. But maybe it's just someone who's willing to play their part 
in God's great song of life, of redeeming life. And the difference, really, truly, not just the difference, but the eternal impact one person can have when they simply say yes to letting God use them. Now think about that. We've been talking in this series about this unstoppable movement that God is doing through this book of Acts, this unstoppable movement, this wave where his Holy Spirit kind of takes off and unleashes through the world, truly, through the world. And, and it starts in this one little place in this small region in the world called Jerusalem, but it just continues to go up from there. And what we see in the story is that people who were failures, people that were last ones picked, people that were actually overlooked, take the story further. And God invites these people to participate. As if it's a surfing thing, he invites them to grab a board and go out into the water. And if they can't stand up, fine, then they can kneel. And if they can't kneel, fine, they can lay down. And if, if they can stand up, great, they can stand up. And if they create a new move, fine. But that's not the point. The point is that these people are in the movement of God. And if that's true, and I believe with everything I've studied that it is, then how can we How can you and I be people who allow God to use them? That's where the story takes us today. And there's these three bodies, these somebodies in this this section, this story of Scripture that we see in Acts chapter 9 that show us and explain to us how we can let God use us. Because they heard God or they fear God, they hear God, and they follow God. So let's look at this story. The key kind of for this is at the very end of this story, Acts 9.31, it says that the church throughout the region, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, the church enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened because they lived in the fear of the Lord and they were encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and it spread. They lived by the fear of the Lord. They were encouraged by the Holy Spirit. If we want to be people that will let God use us, we have to live in the fear of the Lord. Now, by this, I do not mean that we need to be afraid of God. To live in the fear of the Lord, I think, means to revere God. It means to be in awe of God. It means to think God more significant than we think of ourselves. It would mean that I care more about what God thinks or says than what others think or say. And to polarize the point, ask yourself, do I care more about being significant or being set free? Because this first somebody, this first person that we see, actually, I would say, cares more about being significant than being set free. His name is Saul. We met him a few chapters ago, if you were in the story, when um, one of the first followers of Jesus died for his faith. The scripture tells us, the story tells us that Saul was in hearty agreement with Stephen's death. He grabbed the cloaks of the people that were murdering him. And then it says that he began to destroy the church rounding up men and women, new thing, and sending them into prison. And here we see at the beginning of chapter 9 that Saul is still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. 
In fact, he goes to the high priest and he asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, north of where they are, a very, very, very important trade route in land that the message had spread to. So he asked for letters to those synagogues so that if he found any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he tells this story um, later in life, later in the book, he recounts this, and it was high noon. You don't travel on the edge of the Arabian desert at high noon. You take a siesta. You travel in the morning, you take a break, you travel in the afternoon. This is a man who's relentless to do what he thinks he should do. He travels at high noon. We see that in Acts 26. But here it says, As he went on the way, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light flashed from heaven all around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. See, the men traveling with Saul, they stood up there speechless because they'd heard a sound, but they did not see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days, he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. Now, if we were all in youth group, I would say pair up, and one of you is going to get a blindfold, and you're going to have to put it on. And then you're going to have to let the other person lead you around the room, find a different seat. And you're all most of you are adults, so you would leave. <laughs> because you're like, I, I give orders at work. <laughs> I manage a whole team of people. I am not going to be led by the hand and have my shins marked up by chairs because someone can't lead me around. Go ahead and close your eyes right now and realize how disorienting not having your sight is. Here's someone who has been on the fast track to a successful life. Saul could get what he wants. If you haven't opened your eyes, you can. He goes to the high priest and he asks for letters and he got them. He tells later in the story, I think we have the the text, that that he says, I'm a Jew. I'm born of Tarsus in Sicilia. I have been brought up in Jerusalem, and under the rabbi Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was zealous for God as any of you are today. He says later that, he says, you know, you know, these people that he's writing to, what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church, I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. Do you see the drive in this man? Do you see the the desire to be significant? And he believes he's doing this all in the name of God. And yet, 
he's completely blinded. He'll say later that he's the worst of sinners. That he counts the rest of his life as worthless because now he knows Jesus. But I think, you know, some of us could very much relate to Saul. Some of us end up in a situation where we open our eyes and yet we can't see. It's a situation where we assume that we know what's going on and yet when we step into it, all of a sudden we feel lost. We feel disoriented. We have to be led by the hand. And that's what happens to Saul. He discovers just how blind he is. In fact, I would say that when Jesus says his words, that they weren't piercing and sharp in an attack. They were piercing because of the truth they held. Why do you persecute me, Saul? He didn't say, why do you persecute my church? He didn't say, why do you persecute my followers? He said, why do you persecute me? And at that moment, for Saul, his whole life turns upside down and inside out. In, in significant ways, he goes from hero to zero. But in other ways, he goes from being giving the orders to, to being having to take the orders. And for three days, it says he sits in darkness. Remember in the Bible, when there's a three, it's a code. It's like this thing that the writer's trying to tell you that something new is right on the horizon, that something is about to happen. And three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. It's like, we're not there yet, but we can start to see it. Well, for three days, he is not eating. He's not drinking. Gosh, that sounds a lot, not just like darkness, but like death. Like, everything I knew is being undone. So there's terror, and there's shame. And yet there's awe, and there's glory, and there's ruin. Because for him, like, he is now seeing more clearly than ever. For, in one sense, it's confirming everything he was taught. And in another sense, it's, it's just unraveling everything he's taught. If he's been schooled in the law and the prophets like he says he has, then he knows the law and he knows the prophets and he knows, oh my goodness, in this, everything has come true. Everything that God said and everything he promised is now coming true. It's like it's being torn apart and yet it's being put back together in a whole new way. It says to him that that this God that he's followed his whole life, the God that he has been right to serve, the God that he has been right to study, right to seek in prayer, right to live by, the God of his ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to name a few, the God that is that God that promised things to those people, that he has actually done everything he said he would. He just did it in this completely scandalous way, this shocking way, this almost horrifying way that this God would actually come to us in person. Just in the person of Jesus, who who our people with the Romans killed. This God who he loved from his childhood. This God that he'd studied his whole life. This God that he was so zealously trying to fight for his glory. 
this was the God that he'd now brought people into prison for, that he had, he had condoned the murder of or the killing of those followers. This God who people declared as Jesus, who was the Messiah, who rose from the dead, the one whose voice is still ringing through his head, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he's been given a vision that someone will come to him, someone, someone he has no idea who, a nobody really, who will come and help him truly see that Jesus is really the Lord of the world. Now again, I think that Saul's world is not that different from the world that you and I live in. We hear every day about our need to have more and to be more and to achieve more. If we're not significant, if we can't make the best video of something, then we're nothing. And it's a lie. It's a lie that we're fed every day. Because we see the brokenness around us, don't we? We see the sin in the world. We see the brokenness in us. And we use religion to manipulate it. We, we know that sin tries to dominate us. And, and we know that there's this world that lives in, in disregard for Jesus and for eternity that is constantly pushing in on us. And we need to be reminded. We need to have, I would say, even more than reminded. We need to sometimes be told that we can't see even when we open our eyes, that we are being blinded like Saul. Because God is constantly, constantly trying to open our eyes. He's constantly trying to shine a light on who he is, on the glory that he, he lived for, on the values that we're living for that are false, and on the boredom, yes, boredom of sin. And the burden that religion can have when we, when we use it incorrectly. But he's also trying to shine a light on what a life set free in Jesus looks like. And sometimes we need a messenger. We need someone to help us hear that. If you know Jesus, was it just because God gave you a flash of light and spoke to you? Or was it because someone else shared the message with you? Or someone else showed you the compassion, showed you the grace, told you the good news? I would say that majority is because of a messenger. Enter our second character. Really a nobody It says that there was in Damascus a disciple, a follower of Jesus named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord. The Lord said to him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. 
In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. But Lord, I think they took the butt out. It used to say, but Lord. If, if Lord is Lord, you can't say but to him. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man, how he has done harm to your holy people in Jerusalem and how he's come here with the authority of the chief priest to arrest those who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Imagine someone in your life who you think there is no humanly possible way that this person could ever come to know this great God who reveals himself in Jesus. I have a few. That's what Ananias is being told. This guy who's been the greatest enemy to the faith, the one that makes you the most scared, that guy is praying for you to come and restore his sight, to help him to see. No, I don't want to go. But if we want to be people who let God use them, we not only have to fear the Lord, I would say we have to hear the Lord. Ananias is no one special. He's actually a nobody. It's a very common name. We don't know a lot about him. In fact, I would say not only is he not very significant, this is the only place that he is talked about in all of Scripture. And if we believe the lie of being significant, then we would say, well, it's not a big deal. But isn't it ironic that, at least for me, for 20 years, I have read this section of the scripture and I have believed that it's all about Paul or Saul who becomes Paul. And actually, if you read the dialogue between God and Saul, it will be very brief, about 40 words. If you read the dialogue between God and Ananias, the writer gives more than twice as much to this nobody. This writer, and I would say then, if it's inspired by God, God sees Ananias as very, very significant. Someone who you and I would classify as a no one is someone. Someone very important. Someone who has made space in their life to listen for God. See, God does not usually give us vision between back-to-back work meetings. It's very hard for God to speak to us on weekend baseball, softball, name your sport tournaments. I mean, he could, but it's just rare. Because hurried people often don't make time to hear from God. But I'm also not saying that you have to be super spiritual to do this. You don't, it doesn't mean you need to take a week-long fasting and prayer over in, with some monastery. You can do that. It's a good way to make space to hear from God. I've done it before, but it doesn't have to be that. You don't have to take a weekend spiritual retreat to go hear from God. It's a good thing. 
But I believe and I've experienced that God speaks to us in moments of quiet. When we take a few minutes, maybe it's the beginning of the day, and we open the Bible and we say, God, would you speak to me? And we pause long enough to listen that God speaks to us in those moments just as much as he speaks to us in the super, what we would call the super spiritual moments or the weekend retreats. This is how God uses us. Last week, I gave you the challenge to say, Holy Spirit, I'm available, use me. And I know that some of you said that and some of you heard the nudging of God and followed it. And very, very neat things happen. Are you leaving space in your life? And this isn't to make you feel guilty. Just to ask the question, are you leaving space in your life? Are you creating space in your life to hear from God? And if you're a young mom with little kids at home, I remember this story of um, an old pastor from like, I think the 1700s, John Wesley, who had, he had, they had 12 kids. His wife would take her Bible and she'd be wearing this big long dress and the kids would all be running around and she'd literally throw her dress over her head and say, leave me alone for 20 minutes. And she would read the Bible and pray with the dress over her head and kids running around. And that must have been a very focused woman. It's just moments of quiet. Moments of stillness when we create space for that. We find a chair in our house or a corner of our house. Maybe it's in our yard. Maybe it's on a walk. It's amazing what you do when you say, it's all spiritual, so God, I'm setting aside that space for me to notice you. How it will train your mind and your heart and your soul to hear from the God of the universe who absolutely positively and unconditionally wants to have a relationship with you because he loves you. That's what we see with Ananias. And when God does something crazy, amazing, he responds. See, God might be asking you to do something crazy and you might be hesitating. Certainly, Ananias put up a little fight, but but he's hesitating. And we see here that this guy is the least likely. In fact, we see it in Acts 9, 26, that after he comes to know Jesus, he actually tries to go meet with the disciples in Jerusalem, and they all freak out. They're like, no way, this is the guy who persecuted. We are not going to accept him. Because I would say more important than fearing the Lord and hearing from the Lord is we have to follow the Lord. It doesn't really matter if we fear him and we hear him if we don't follow him. If he invites us to do, invites us to participate, and we say, mm, no thanks, then we're not really saying he's Lord. Saul would never have become the Paul that we see in the scripture without two nobodies or somebodies or anybodies, but these two men, Ananias, that we'll read, see in a second, and Barnabas, as well, who hear God, who fear God, and who follow God, who cared more about what God said than what others thought. They did what they heard. And, and just 
as we close, consider the eternal impact that one person had. Because Ananias said yes, and he went to Saul. He says, Brother Saul, think about that. This is God's greatest enemy who's now becoming God's greatest instrument. Brother Saul. The person that you feared, that you're persecuting, that that is going to persecute you, you go to them and you say, I see you as part of the family. And I want to, in the name of Jesus, help you to see. Not by my power, but by God's. And Saul is brought in. Barnabas, when the church says, no way, we are not going to let him. Barnabas sees something new. Sees God's grace working in a new way in this. And he says, okay. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, that he'd heard the Lord, and how he'd spoken fearlessly, preached in the name of Jesus. Because changed mindsets, changed belief, results in changed behavior. And Barnabas sees God's grace working in a new way and says, guys, you're missing it. Let him in. And this man who said yes to being used by God follows Jesus through suffering and sickness and weakness and criticism and persecution and prison and eventually death. But no one, except for Jesus, has followed more faithfully in the name of Jesus. No one has brought the good news to so many different kinds of people in such a short amount of time. Yes, the least and the lost and the lonely outside of the Jewish faith, but also to the religious, to the powerful, to men and women, to Jews and Greeks, to black and white, to rich and poor. No one had done that before. This is the man who will write about two-thirds of what we will know as the New Testament. And he will live out, probably more clearly than anyone has ever seen, what it means to be resurrected from the dead. Because two nobodies let God use them. If you've heard of the person named Billy Graham, what if no one had ever shared the good news with Billy Graham? Then he would not have become the greatest person to bring the message of Jesus in the 20th century. But we have to see eyes, have eyes for eternal things, not just being significant. Because God is looking for somebody. He's looking for anybody. I would say he'll even take nobody who will fear him and hear him and follow him to see the world restored to him. Now, I need a couple volunteers as the band comes up. Oh, I'll take you, I'll take you, I'll take you, and I'll take you. And so, let's see, why don't you take that? 
and you take that, and you take that, and oh, okay, you take that. Yep, that's the, that's the mouth. Okay. All right, you all have sticks. Yep, you all have sticks. You show them, you take your little case off there. Here you go, spread out, show everybody your, show everybody your stick. Your stick has holes in it. Your stick has curves in it. That's actually a yodeling horn. Did you know that, Jay? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to try to play that? You, you can. It's all right. It's clean. Yeah, it's, it's clean. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Do you want to try and play that? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to try and play that? You want to try and play that? So, so, no, that's okay. You guys fed right into it. See, what's the difference between this and this if we don't play it? Nothing. It's just a stick. But if we see our role, if we see the God of the universe who wants to blow through our life in a way that would bl- make beautiful music, then all of a sudden, it does matter that it's a recorder, flute, not a stick. And even sticks can work together to make music. And even yodel sticks can be played if we have the courage to play them. You guys can take a seat. You can bring it with you. Where do you need to fear God? In a way that says, I care more about what you think, God, than what others say. Where, even just in the next week, maybe even just today, will you make space to hear God? Because he loves you. And he sees you as significant. And that makes you significant. Don't believe the lie that you need to do something special, something innovative to be significant. If you participate with God, you are significant. You know, that pastor and author that I mentioned saw this guy come back to his seat, and they knew that the, they'd been to enough concerts that they knew the music was kind of crescendoing, that the, that the concert was coming to a close, and, and they saw the guy who was Mr. Board Guy, and all of a sudden he stands up. And they kind of get on the edge of their seat because they could hear the music and they thought maybe something was coming. And as it neared the end, they could just hear the tempo change and hear this climax in the music. And, and at that moment, they're like, is this guy going to do something? Or, and he reaches down, he grabs these two big cymbals. And they heard the music. This moment that would not have been, I don't know why I'm getting emotional about this. That's crazy. But it was this moment in the music where it's like, you, if you know music, you know this needs a cymbal crash. It needs it, and if it didn't have it, like, it would be okay, but it wouldn't be beautiful. And in that moment, hits it, and it fills this moment. It fills this chord. It fills this song. And there's applause and applause and applause, and the conductor goes to the people who made the solos and to the, all, these, all these instruments that made significant contributions. And then he turns and he nods to the board guy at the cymbals who played one note. 
and the applause were an uproar because of that one contribution. There are going to be moments in heaven, friends. One symbol crash makes a difference in eternity. What does it look like for you and I to look for opportunities to see God at work? Yes, through the tithe challenge, we've already had some people say, oh my gosh, I did this and this and this happened because I said yes to God in that. Take this faith challenge, this faith test to go, okay, God, use me. If we did that every day, if each one of us said, God, I'm available to you, imagine what God could do to impact and change the world. Because he wants to, and he's going to, and he invites you to participate.